Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. By looking at only 100 pages in each episode, my intention is to go systematically and rigorously through these works, introducing them to you and giving some of my thoughts and historical perspective as we move through them. In this episode, I will be completing my look at James Fenimore Cooper's novel, The Deerslayer, which was originally published in 1841, but was chronologically the first of the Leatherstocking Tales, the story of the frontier hero Nathaniel Bumpo. So in the first four parts of my review of The Deerslayer, we covered the deep moral differences between some of our major characters. This is above everything else, a novel of contrasts. Our hero, Deerslayer, and his companion, Hurry Harry, meet the Hutter family on Glitter Glass Lake in upstate New York, but are immediately put under the threat by Mingos, which is the pejorative term used in the novel for the Hurons. After Thomas Hunter, a rumored pirate, and Hurry Harry are captured, the Deerslayer returns to find Hutter's children and protect them. Deerslayer makes his first kill of a human being at this time. Hetty Hutter goes to the Huron to plea for her father's life, and Deerslayer's companion Chingachgook arrives to seek his betrothed, who was also captured by the Hurons. Seeking a way to ransom him, they search through the belongings of Thomas Hutter, especially a mysterious chest filled with possible pirate treasure. They eventually ransom the men with four chess pieces and prepare to rescue Chingachgut's betrothed Hist, Histahist, or Watawa. But during their successful effort to rescue Hist, Deerslayer is captured by the Huron. Hetty's efforts to ransom Deerslayer fail, and Deerslayer comes to realize that he will be tortured and then probably killed. While Hetty escapes, an Indian woman is shot in the darkness. In retaliation, the Hurons attack the castle and scalp Thomas Hutter. As he dies, he reveals his true past to his daughters. He's not their father. The true history could be found at the bottom of a chest in hundreds of letters. Deerslayer, at this time, returns, returns from his captivity on furlough, and his real mission there is to negotiate peace. He gives the, the Hurons offer, uh, which essentially involves Hist and all the women living and, and joining the Huron tribe. They refuse the offer. Judith also refuses to marry Hurry Harry, but offers herself instead to Deerslayer as, as his wife. He also refuses. Hurry goes off to get help, leaving the, the story more or less at this time. He'll appear at the end, but his, his story is mostly done with the uh, refusal of Judith to, to marry him. So this then we comes to the climax of the story. Much has been already resolved in the story by this point. It's really a matter of what is going to happen to Deerslayer as he returns to the Huron camp 
and is about to face torture and, and death. So I'll begin on chapter 25. and um, Now, chapter 25 and 26, to kind of, they kind of go together, these chapters. They're the apparent final meeting of our heroes. Now, it's a prequel, so the readers know that Deerslayer is going to live, right? Because Nanny Bumpo appears in later tales. But it's, it's still pretty tense and... and you know, it's, 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 and it's, it's not so much about will Deerslayer survive. It's about how is he, how is he going to face this challenge and, and you now how are they going to get out of this mess? So in this chapter, we get a window into how Deerslayer sees the Indian religions as he talks to Chingachgook. Deerslayer hopes that the hearts of the Huron will be shaped, but he knows that his chances for survival are quite um, small. They discuss science as knowledge and how science and the nature and, and all these things are experienced differently by both the Indians and the whites. So Chingachgook, for instance, says, Chingachgook can see him everywhere. Talking about the great spirit or, yeah, the great spirit. Everywhere in good things. The evil spirit is bad. Here in the lake, there's good things. Or here in the forest, yonder in the clouds, in Hist, in the son of Uncas, in Tamanid, in Deerslayer. The evil spirit is in the Mingos. That I see. I do not see the earth turn round. And then Deerslayer says, I don't wonder why they call you serpent, Delaware. No, I don't. There's always a meaning to your words, and there's often a meaning in your countenance too. Notwithstanding your answers, doesn't quite meet my idea. The God is observable in all natural objects is allowable. But then he is not parsable in the way I mean. You know there's a great spirit in his works, and the pale faces know the earth turns by its works. There's a reason for this matter, though how it's to be explained is more than I can exactly tell you. This I know. All my people can say the fact, and what all the pale faces can say is likely to be true. Now, interestingly, Deerslayer doesn't have any evidence for the earth going around the sun. He's just got what he's heard. And he it's revealed earlier in the novel, actually, that he's not very, he can't really read, um, at least at this point in his life. And he understands things, I guess not, I mean, he's not a really an educated man. That's my point. And he's just getting this from his culture. And he says, well, white men believe this, so therefore it should be true, which is essentially what Chingachgook is saying. It's like, I'm just following my, my culture and, and traditions. But we do get kind of a distinction between different scientific knowledge. But there's a broader theme here when Cooper's talking about religion and science, and that's that this distinctions, there's a kind of a cultural relativism on this earth. But it doesn't necessarily mean there's not a deeper truth that, that needs to be shared by all people at the end of the day. So anyways, Deerslayer talks to all of them, especially Judith and Hetty, uh, to whom he gives lessons about, about truth and morality, which are, of course, major subjects of the entire novel. And they're kind of a lesson given before the climax of, of our story. He also had, makes a really interesting distinction between nature and, I guess, nurture. I guess, or, or nature and training and how people have a bit of both. And I think one of the women asks him, like, what's the difference be between nature and, and gift? Isn't nature a gift from God, she asked. And he's like, well, that, that's, there's some truth to that. But 
He says, quote, this nature can never be changed in the main, though it may undergo some increase or lessening. Now, gifts come from circumstances. Thus, if you put a man in a town, he gets town gifts. In a settlement, settlement gifts. In a forest, gifts of the woods. A soldier has soldierly gifts and a missionary preaching gifts. All of these increase and strengthen until they get to fortify nature, as it may be, and excuse a thousand acts and ideas. Still, the creature is, at, is the same at the bottom just as a man who is clad in regimental is the same as a man who's clad in skins, end quote. So again, we have this idea that, that there's cultural distinction and diversity, you know, even down to the level of profession, but there's a deeper moral truth uh, underlying everything, and that's, that's that broader humanity. So in the previous chapter, Deerslayer was given this rifle. This was the, the rifle kill deer, and... He's Deerslayer, and the rifle is called Kill Deer. This is Hutter's rifle, and so with Hutter's dead, the daughter's passing on to him. Now, he doesn't really need it. He figures he's going to be killed by the Huron anyway, so he's not going to pass it on just to them. And he's Deerslayer, so why does he need a rifle called Kill Deer anyways? He passes it on to Chingachgook. Now, in a bit of a strange aside, they decide to have a shooting contest by shooting birds. And in the final part of this chapter, Deerslayer kills an eagle, which is very much out of character for Deerslayer, because earlier in the novel, he scorned Harry Hutter, Hurry Harry, sorry, not Hutter, Hurry Harry for, for shooting at a deer when he didn't need to kill a deer. You know, he says, I'm Deerslayer, but I only kill for necessity. You're kind of killing for sport. But here they kill for sport. And this is a, a moral moment for Deerslayer. And that brings us right into chapter 26. So immediately after doing this, Deerslayer rejects the morality of killing the eagle. Saying, we've done an unthoughtful thing, serpent, yes. Judith, we've done an unthoughtful thing and taken the life with an object no better than vanity. It was more becoming two boys to gratify their feelings on this a thoughtful manner than two warriors on the warpath, even though it may be the first. Ah, me. Well, as a punishment, I'll quit you at once. And when I find myself alone with those bloody-minded Mingos, it's more like I'll have the occasion to remember that life is sweet, even to the beasts of the woods and the fowl of the air. And at one point, they even say he even says, like, if I had the time, I'd go and actually kill the baby eagles, because this is the time of the year when they'd be um, hatching eggs, basically just because he just want them to starve. He has broken his moral code for vanity. Um, now, we, we, at this point, we kind of get the with the great power comes great responsibility talk as Deerslayer muses on his crimes. Deerslayer is ensured that he will die, and he's honest with everyone else in the party about, about his future. Deerslayer talks to Chingachgook, and they return to previous statements about the universality of the afterlife and his general philosophy of God. Which, again, he sort of sees God in nature. But at the end of the day, he does believe in a Christian heaven that all people can join. It says, um, But of the doctrine serpent that most disturbs me and disconcerts my mind the most is the one that teaches us to think that a pale face goes to one heaven and a red skin to another and may separate in death, which has them which lived much together and loved each other well in life. And he, he comes to the conclusion that eventually Chingachgook will become a Christian someday, and and this dis, this distinction won't be as important. But he does think at this point at this point in his life that that there really can't be a diversity of 
of afterlifes or at the very most that are like a diversity of experiences in the afterlife. Because early in the novel, we did talk about, you know, you're going to go to happy hunting grounds. I'm going to go to heaven. But here he, he muddles that and, and suggests there is a more common experience of the afterlife based on the Christian truths. Now, Hetty intervenes and says she doesn't believe it's wise for Deerslayer to go back to the Huron. Hetty is still very naive, and she thinks that he can be saved through the Bible, or that the Huron will listen to biblical law and, and free him and let him go. Deerslayer doesn't believe that's really possible. And this is actually like several times Hetty has kind of come back to this issue of let's let's free the Deerslayer by, by just preaching moral suasion to the Indians. Now, his final talk with Hetty centers on the reality of their situation and the reality of her relationship with Hurry Harry, who she's fallen in love with. And he, he kind of warns her against, you know, really falling too much for, for this man, Hurry Harry. Marriage needs to be peaceful, and that's what Hurry cannot offer Hetty. So chapters 25 and 26 are thick with morality, and there's really these kind of contrivances like the shooting of the eagle, which kind of get presented to us as moral tests. And in a way, you do feel that Cooper is lecturing the reader through Deerslayer, who does, in fact, command the narrative at this point in the story. Now, the heart of this whole passage, these two chapters, is his belief that separate cultures on Earth will eventually combine into an ultimate reality. So we get a little bit philosophical in the middle of this adventure tale. So chapter, with, with this philosophy kind of out of the way, we can move back to the action. Chapter 27. Um, Deerslayer arrives at the Mingo camp. His return is, is taken with respect, with even admiration by the Huron, because many Huron did not believe he'd come back. They thought that he'd, he'd betray the furlough. And the fact that he does come back gives him a lot of credit among many of, of the Huron warriors, and the, especially the chief Rivenoak, who was coming to very much respect Deerslayer. Many simply did not believe he would come at all. The chief, Rivernoak, decides that Deerslayer is worthy of saving and gives him a chance to enter into the tribe as in the social position of the man he killed earlier in the novel. My understanding is that this was a fairly common thing among the Iroquois-speaking people, that a captive, someone captured in war, could be brought back in as the same social status, even this literally the same individual, as the person, a person who died in war, right? So you would marry his wife, be father to his children, and you know, kind of have that have have that role. And that that's kind of what Rivernoak offers to Deerslayer. Deerslayer is simply too worthy to, to simply just kill off. But much of this chapter is a long conversation between Rivernoak and Deerslayer over issues of pride, honor, bravery, and redemption. But there is this really wonderful passage on marriage, which is a little bit more fun to, to look at. It's, it's kind of Rivernoak's final plea to bring the Deerslayer into, into the tribe. It says, Killer of deer, my aged men have listened to wise words. They are ready to speak. You are the f man whose fathers come from beyond the rising sun. We are children of the setting sun. We turn our faces towards great sweet lakes when we look towards our villages. It may be a wide country and full of riches beyond the morning, but it's a very pleasant towards the evening. We love most to look in that direction. When we gaze in the east, we feel afraid, canoe after canoe bringing more and more of your people in the track of the sun, as it is their land 
was to so full as to run over. The red men are fuel ready. They have need of help. One of our best lodges has lately been emptied by the death of its master. It will be a long time before his son can grow big enough to sit in its place. There's a widow. She will want venison to feed her and her children, and her sons will yet like the young are yet, yet like the young of a robin before they quit the nest. By your hand, this great calamity has fallen on her. She has two duties, one to Le Coupe Severe and one to her children. Scalp for scalp, life for life, blood for blood is one law. To feed her young, another. We know you, killer of deal. You're honest when you say a thing. It is so. You have but one tongue, and this is not forked like a snake. All right, on and on. So the arguments come down to, one, you killed this man, so you should pay back the widow by being her husband. And it's also that we need men because we are dying out and we're under pressure of the settlers coming into this area and we're a dying people. And this is a theme you get a lot in in Cooper. You know, he calls one of his novels in this series, The Last of the Mohicans. So this idea of the Indians being pushed out of the frontier and abolished as a people is, is something he comes back to a lot. Now, what's Deerslayer's response to this? Well, his response is, quote, I'm white and Christian born. To be ill for me to take a wife under redskin forms among the heathen. That which I wouldn't do in peaceable times under the bright sun, still less I would do behind clouds in order to save my life. I may never marry. Most likely Providence is putting me up here in the woods, has intended I should live a single without a lodge of my own. But should such a thing come to pass, none but a woman of my own color and gifts shall darken the door of my wigwam. Now, of course, Deerslayer just refused marriage to Judith. So he, he's gotten two marriage offers in, in essentially one day here. And he's, he's rejected both. One because, for racial reasons and the other because he wants to be free in the wilderness and in, in, in the woods. I think he's just trying to avoid marriage. But um, anyways, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, this back and forth they have, uh, especially River and Oak and Deerslayer have a really nice dialogue throughout this part of the novel. Now, one of the Huron is angry at this kind offer and is rejected. I think it's, it's the brother or something of, of the widow. And he just gets upset and he throws a tomahawk at Deerslayer. Deerslayer grabs it. He catches it like in midair and throws it back, killing the man. And his name is Panther. At this point, Deerslayer runs for it and tries to escape. And you might think for a moment about the morality of this. Now, Deerslayer at this moment realizes he wants to live. And Cooper says something about like this glint in his eye when he grabs this tomahawk. But he returned. Why return if he just wants to escape? Well, there's a different morality here. One is he promised to return from his furlough. So he's honor bound to do that. It doesn't mean he's not doesn't have the right to try to escape when he gets the chance. So this is followed by a woodland chase scene as Deerslayer tries to escape. And that takes us to the end of chapter 27. In chapter 28, Deerslayer is hiding in a canoe, hoping to avoid being found out by the pursuing Huron. He realizes someone is near, so he jumps out and finds River and Oak, the chief there. They have a frank conversation about the death of Panther and the morality of his death. And, and Deerslayer def says, I had a right to defend my life and to try to escape. Deerslayer insists on the rightfulness of his actions. It's Tanther who struck him first in anger, you know, and dishonorably. River Oak seems to agree, but he, agree. he 
and he really likes Deerslayer, but he has much larger political concerns about the tribe and the and the, the community. And he still wants Deerslayer to become part of the tribe, but that's going to become difficult if there's like these violent acts. Essentially, Deerslayer is going to have to face the council and torture when he's returned to the camp. Kind of the easy way out. They're beyond that now. The easy way, which would have been him just to marry. So he's returned to the camp and they're getting ready for this trial. And at this point, Hetty comes again to try to rescue Deerslayer. This is actually the third time she's come to the Huron camp with a a naive plan to rescue men. The first time it was trying to rescue Hutter and Hurry Harry. Now it's an effort to try to rescue. Well, then later on it was, it was an effort to try to rescue Deerslayer. And now it's time to save Deerslayer again. And again, it comes down to kind of her moral plea, please. River Noak returns to the idea of marriage since Deerslayer has now killed a husband and a son of the woman. Also, Panther was the, was the, the son. Deerslayer has killed both of these, but he explains to Hetty why it cannot be in his arguments. We've essentially already heard it's that, you know, he's he's meant to be single. It's he says, quote, it's a moral impossibility that I should ever marry Sumac. And though Injun weddings have no priest and not so much religion, a white man who knows his gifts and duties cannot profit by that. And so makes his escape at the fitting time. I do think death would be more natural like and welcomed in wedlock with this woman. Hetty is a bit upset by this because she wants him to live and her big concern is, is her life, his life. Now, Sumac is enraged at being abandoned and this puts River Noak in the impossible situation of needing to commence the torture. Killing has become a natural part of life on the frontier as is torture and death. And th these are kind of put together. Not only does the torture lead to death, you, in most cases, Deerslayer faces his torture not long after his first kill. So th these things are, are tied together. Now, I'm not, you know, we can question Deerslayer's morality on this, right? Others may have married Sumac. I, you might even think someone like Hurry Harry or Thomas Hutter would have in the pinch saved his life by marrying Sumac. I'm not sure because they're pretty racist. Um, and Hutter, both Hutter and, and Hurry Harry have, have said in the course of the novel things that make, suggest that they wouldn't do this. But they were never offered. They were never seen worthy enough to join the community like as Deerslayer did. But certainly we can imagine other people would have married Sumac or for that matter, Judith. Deerslayer will not. And in doing this, in this decision, he's putting other people at risk. Now, he is the upright hero and he sticks to his moral guns. But I think there's a space for us to maybe question, is Deerslayer right in this? Is it, should he have perhaps married Sumac and accepted a different life or, or married Judith for that matter and, and become her protector rather than just always turning his back on people um, we see in other novels in this series that Deerslayer is willing to fight for others and stand up for them and risk his life for others. But I get a feeling here that, you know, like Cooper needs Deerslayer and single, and he puts him in the situation where marriage may have been the more logical and moral choice he would have made, but uh, he doesn't and he holds out. So chapter 29, we finally can jump into the torture scene that we've been waiting for and been foreshadowed for 
literally half the novel by this point. The first torture is the test of the tomahawk. Now, all this torture is very playful. It, it is life and death at the end, and, but it's it's very play, playful, and it's a the people throwing the tomahawk are sort of play acting and showing off their skill. And Deerslayer's job in all this is not to flinch, right? Um, only the skilled throw. Most skilled throwers are allowed into the act because they don't want to kill Deerslayer. It's more about getting him to flinch and to reveal that he's not like manly enough. They throw tomahawks at him while he's tied to a tree, but his neck is free, so he's able to still flinch. They don't tie him down directly. So Deerslayer's goal is basically not to make any motions. And meanwhile, to taunt the throwers to try to get them as close, to get them angry, so they might throw in anger and not be as accurate. And so basically, you risk your life, and that's your job as the captive. This is all to prove your status as a man and a warrior. Meanwhile, Deerslayer is, you know, of course, trying to get them to be filled with rage. And Deerslayer earns respect by enduring this ritual. Now, the next torture, when that, when that fails, they try to, they kind of up it, and that's the rifle test, which is the same kind of idea as you shoot rifles, and then his goal is not to, not to flinch. At this point, uh, Hetty interrupts with her own pleas, like she has been doing again and again. And it doesn't really work. The test of the rifle commences. And again, Deerslayer is expected to flinch and therefore prove himself less than a true warrior. At this time, Judith arrives with a chest ready to ransom Deerslayer. In fact, one by one, all of Deerslayer's companions are going to come with an effort to save him using their own way. Now, Judith doesn't come as, as Judith. In fact, she attempts a circumvention of what Deerslayer would call it. So in chapter three, we get Judith's circumvention. She's claiming to be a powerful woman with an army behind her. In fact, she has nothing else but the chest, but she's she like put on some different clothes and she claims to be this, you know, with this threat. And she says, if you don't free them, you're going to be in big trouble. But I'm willing to negotiate with with you for Deerslayer's life. River Noak, though, is not fooled. Now, you can't fool of a trickster and one thing Deerslayer often reminded these women of is that the Huron are conniving and they'll go and they'll do tricks and they're full of circumventions so a circumvention can't really work with them but neither does like the moral uprightness of of Hetty eventually what it takes is force um, but anyways it doesn't work River Oak sees right through it he knows who Judith is he says you're the daughter of Hutter but it's interesting that clothing was the core of this deception because so Hetty comes in with the Bible and morality. Judith comes in with clothing. And so they, they really come at their efforts to save Deerslayer through their own experiences and their own talents and, and character. So back to the torture. This time, the device of the torture will be fire. Deerslayer's flesh will be burned until he yells out. Hist at this point arrives to deliver her vengeance on the man who kidnapped her, and he's named Briarthorn. And he's he was a Delaware like Hist and Chingachgook. Oh, Chingachgook was raised by the Delaware, um, living with the Delaware, but Mohican. Um, his, this, okay, this guy was a Delaware who fled, took Hist with him, and then joined the Huron community. His great evil act was the betrayal of the Delaware and his, and his stealing of, of Hist. And she confronts him on this. Now, this doesn't work either to 
save Deerslayer. And then Chingachgook leaps into the camp with Killdeer, and he makes an offer as well. Now, this is all meant to be a very dramatic moment in the novel, I'm sure. Huron! The earth is very big. The Great Lakes are big too. There is room beyond them for the Iroquois. There is room for the Delaware on this side. I am Chingachgook, son of Uncas, kinsman of Tamanend. This is my betrothed. That pale face is my friend. My heart was heavy when I missed him. I followed him to your camp to see that no harm happened to him. All the Delaware girls are waiting for Wa. They wonder that she stays so long away. Come, let us say our farewell and go on our path. And that that's his offer. His offer is basically uh, a peace back to normal. Free everyone and, and, and have peace. Now all this is going on when we hear the sounds of the garrison arriving. Now... All this of each person coming and making an effort, it, it may sound a little bit silly and unrealistic, but what's really happening here is that each member of the party in turn sticks up for Deerslayer using their ability, paying back the way Deerslayer stuck up for them at various times in the story. Even Hurry, in a sense, shows up at the end through the arrival of the garrison because Hurry's with them and Hurry's the one who, who brought them. So everyone sticks up for Deerslayer the way Deerslayer stuck up for them. Um, so... Now we can get to the end of the novel. Uh, chapter 31. Between chapter 30 and 31 was this big battle. It's all told off stage. It's a big battle that pushed off the Huron. Many people die. And what we see the sur survivors the next day. The major loss among our heroes is Hetty. Hetty Hutter. Hetty was wounded in the battle. And she lives on, but she only has time to talk to her family and friends. So we get the death scene. And I don't know if this is just... Was this common in literature at the time, or is this just what Cooper liked to do? Because this is like the second overly long death scene we get in we get in this novel. But you know, you have to talk to everyone before you can die. In in fiction, at least. So she talks to everyone, and she reconciles with her sister. She comes to peace with Hurry Harry, who has she come to love, but she now now she judges him and demands that he takes up a life closer to that of of the Deerslayer. It's just a quick line, but she says you should live more like the Deerslayer. Deerslayer talks with Hetty and reminds her that she'll meet him in the afterlife. And her final words are about Judith and her mother. And that's that's the end of the story of Hetty. That's that's the great cost. Uh, of course, Thomas Hutter died, but he's not really worth it. He's he's not really a, a loss so much. But the loss of of Hetty is a significant loss because she's so moral and naive and you know. It's, it's just rather sad. And then this brings us to the last chapter of the book, chapter 32. There's not much more to say here. Deerslayer and the reader get details from the commander on the garrison and how they located the Huron camp and, and a little bit more background on the battle that was all fought off screen. Hetty is buried. Judith makes one final attempt to get Deerslayer to marry her. He again rejects her, but he promises her his friendship and his sacrifice. Which it doesn't seem he actually gives her. So this promise seems unfulfilled. He says, Everything is in the way of friendship, Judith. Everything, even to services and life itself. Yes, I'd risk as much for you at this moment as I would risk on behalf of Hist. And that is saying as much as I can say of any darter of woman. I do not think I feel towards either. Mind I say either, Judith. As if I wished to quit a mother and father. If father and mother was living, which how... However, neither is. But if both was living, I do not feel towards any woman 
as if I wished to quit in them in order to cleave unto her. Anyways, he promises his friendship to her, but we learn just in a few pages later that apparently he didn't do much to help her on her way. He just sort of abandons them. So we jump ahead 15 years, and this is just the final pages of the novel, where we jump ahead 15 years to this time where Deerslayer, and I guess his name is, he's going to be a Hawkeye by this point in his life, and Chingachgook come back to this place. This is around the time of the events of The Last of the Mohicans. So this is set in like, I think it's not quite clear. It's like 1740 to 1745. I think Cooper doesn't even give us a precise date on it. It's just during King George's War. And The Last of the Mohicans does have a firm date. It's 1757. So 15 years later, it's around that time. So they go back here and they find that the estate of Thomas Hutter has fallen into disuse and decay. They have the, they see the sites of the battle. They see even some of the canoes and things are still, are still there, but all neglected. They also get news of Judith, but only rumors. And the rumor is that she became the mistress of Captain Worley, who we met earlier, and he was the kind of the leader of this garrison. Without a proper husband, she's forced to become like her mother, basically becoming the mistress of a strong man in the frontier regions. Now, does Deerslayer own this responsibility? I, I want to say he he does. And I'll come to this in a bit, that Cooper doesn't fully forgive Deerslayer either for abandoning Judith. But one thing we've been reminded of constantly throughout the novel when we've met these women is that women, especially like Judith and Hetty, can't survive in these frontier regions without a man. So their choice when their father dies is either marry someone like Deerslayer or hurry Harry or go back to the city and become city women. Um, but there's not really an option for them outside of marriage. And that's true for many women in this time point in American history, both the 18th century, but also the time that Cooper was writing this about, you know, the 1840s, this idea of women having a life outside of marriage, especially in these frontier areas. It's, it's not common anyways. But the way, reason I think that Cooper doesn't fully forgive Deerslayer for his choice here is, is the final words of the novel. It says, We live in a world of transgressions and selfishness, and no picture that represents us otherwise can be true. Though happily for human nature, gleamings of that pure spirit in whose likeness man has been fashioned are to be seen, relieving its deformities and mitigating, if not excusing, its crimes. And, and that's how the novel ends. Now, you know, he admits we have this world of selfishness and this kind of the moral goodness comes through in sparks and moments, gleamings of the true spirit of, of, of humanity. But the reality of the earth is pretty brutal and characters like Judith will, will become victims of this, this world. Um, anyway, so that's the Deerslayer. I know it took us a while to get through. It's, it's a long novel. It's 500 pages, a little bit more than 500 actually, in the Library of America versions. One of his one of Cooper's longer novels in the Leather, Leather Stocking series. It's a, it's a nice adventure story. It has a strong message about morality in the limits of the frontier. Our hero is not flawless. He kills the eagle. He breaks his own ethical code. He fights for his freedom rather than for the good life that can come from marriage. And in doing so, he condemns Judith, a woman he's become quite fond of, to a life of prostitution. 
It is a story of the American frontier. It's a story of its racial and cultural mixings and its diversity. It also is a story of its ethical conflicts, the need to commit to, to, to kill, the need to be violent, and how fragile morality can be in such an area. It's also a story of war, and it shows the victims on both sides of that war. The innocents die on, on both sides in, the, in this novel. The cycle of revenge is not easily satisfied, and pride and honor can get in the way of a proper resolution at times. I sometimes thought while reading this novel that Deerslayer should have been more practical. In a sense, I'm saying maybe we should not fully reject the views of Hurry Harry, who insisted on practicality throughout. Now, his practicality became very brutal in that he said, let's just scalp these people. But I think there's a middle ground. And I think if Deerslayer had married Sumac, become a Huron, he would have saved many lives, including that of Hetty. He would have saved Judith from a life of prostitution, perhaps, and an unknown number of Huron who, who died in the battle. But all in all, it's a, it's a really good read. Now, it's typical of some of Cooper's crimes, the ones that are listed by Mark Twain. Um, and I, I've alluded to some of these in the series. He often overwrites. He often has, instead of internal monologues, just characters speaking out loud for a page and a half. Um, but we do really feel we're in these frontier regions. And his descriptions, although very long, they're, they're nice. I think they're, they have their value in, in American literature. Anyways, that, that's it for, for the Deerslayer. I, I, there's a few themes here we can probably talk about um, that in this section. These, some of these are themes that have been here throughout, of course, but um, they're really highlighted in this part of the novel. Marriage. Marriage is a big theme here. Um, you know, why doesn't Deerslayer want to marry? And he gets different arguments throughout the story about why he's not going to marry, having to do with his desire to be free, uh, him being of the frontier and therefore he can't settle down. And then even saying, because I'm a white man, despite the life I'm living on the frontier, I'm still at the end of the day, a white man and I can't therefore marry an Indian. Different, mar different marriage customs between the whites and the Indians are also alluded to here. So next, uh, just the whole frontier experience, especially as it affects Indians and uh, leads to their decline. Uh, it's addressed directly in this section by the chief River Oak, who says we're basically a dying people. We have war, the cycle of violence, and the fact that innocents die in war. It's a very kind of modern view of war, in that war affects uh, the people who who didn't cause it. And you know, we got the Indian woman who gets shot randomly by Hurry Harry. We really don't know how many Huron died in the battle, but probably many innocents were killed. And then we, of course, have Hetty, who died. Yeah, violent people who perhaps deserve to die do as well, like Thomas Hutter, but a lot of innocents get pulled along with it. So it's a very modern view of, of war, almost the idea of total war. And I, I have, I'm aware of scholarship that's looked at these wars in the American frontier as total wars before. Wars like King Philip's War, you know, killed a higher percentage of the population, you know, a higher percentage or higher number, more people by population than World War II or the Civil War. You know, I, I read somewhere like King Philip's War killed like something like eight or eight or nine percent of Massachusetts. So th these were really bloody wars that went to the, you know, the, the civilian populations. 
Um, hereditary, heredity is, is talked about a lot here. Um, the heredity of, of the Delaware and the Mohicans and the Huron and how these characteristics get passed on through their, through their culture. Uh, he talks about this as, Deerslayer, I mean, talks about this as nature. The nature of different people and how this combines with gifts, which is, is kind of our training. So we got heredity, heredity and, and upbringing and training and, and habits in conflict and how they come together to create a fully developed person. Religion is a major theme of this, especially Cooper's view of a, of a universal moral reality and a universal religious truth that goes beyond all the cultural distinctions we see in the world. And then finally, we got sacrifice. Everyone, all our characters, except maybe Hurry Harry, have their moment of self-sacrifice for other people. Certainly Deerslayer does it, Hetty, Judith, Chingachgook, and Hist all risk their lives for other people. And then we have other people who are sacrificed in, you know, in the story, unknown people who, who just get killed, the faceless Indians in this case, uh, who get killed in the battle. So uh, that's my comments on, on the Deerslayer. Um, again, a fun novel. I don't know how many of you are going to go back and, and reread this. It's, I think it's not one of the common works of American literature that gets revisited very often. But this American cultural motif of, of, of the man walking off into the, into the sunlight. It's most famous in the end of The Pioneers, but you even have it here in a way where Natty Bumpo turns his back on Judith and, and the other people and kind of goes off on his own, right? Chooses independence and the frontier and the wilderness over settling down. You see it, of course, in Westerns a lot. So that's there. It, it just, it's just a fun novel, I think. Uh, so... That does it for the Deerslayer. Uh, I'll be coming. I'll be back next time with the Last of the Mohicans, which is the second of the Lord of the Stocking Tales to be written to have been written after the Pioneers, but it's also chronologically the second in our story, and it will pick up 15 or 16, 17 years later with Chingachgook and his. Um, I guess it's his son by that point, Uncas, and and Hawkeye, as their involved in the French and Indian War and we'll see how they deal with it in some ways a very similar crisis of, of captivity of being captured of of helping frontier people survive in the context of war so there's some themes overlap here in, the, in those two novels so that's what I'll be doing next the last of the Mohicans so I hope you join me for um, my review and my thoughts of that novel so uh, again thank you so much for listening um, if you have any comments, you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I will try to, to respond to your comments on air if you do send me an email. So um, that's it for now. I'll, I'll see you next time. Let Christian men take heart today. The devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what angels sing, how Mary made for Jesus King. Jesus, I